Welcome back to Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. If I sound relaxed, it's because I just had a great vacation week with my wife and son, but we're still bringing the joy, bringing the fun, bringing the perspectives on learning here at Trending in Ed. In particular, I wanted to call out the experience that my young son had at Legoland up in Goshen, New York. Aside from the exorbitant admission price, which I will need to pull some more strings with my friends at Lego to see what we can do for future excursions. But it was really a great experience. Matthew, my son, was pretty much blown away. It reminded me a lot of a conversation we had earlier this year with Jenny Nash from Lego, who was talking about the importance of playful learning. I will say Matthew had a very playful learning experience. His parents did a little bit as well. There was a really great create and test space that I would love to be more publicly available outside of Legoland parks. And similarly, there was a junior driving academy where Matthew had a tough time at first, but he even said to me, and this is a rough quote, it was hard at first. I kept trying and then I learned. Can't really give a much stronger endorsement for playful learning. I'm going to play a little bit from that conversation with Jenny Nash and then come back with some more thoughts and reflections on the Roe v. Wade overturning that happened from the Supreme Court. We did have a really interesting conversation on running it back that I'm going to pick up a little more from later on. But before we do that, let's hear some of my playful learning conversation about STEM education, about Legos. I even squeezed in a joke about stepping on Legos, which is something I've become deeply acquainted with as the parent of a young son. With no further ado, let's pick up some of my conversation with Jenny Nash about the importance of playfulness and learning. We'll pick up with that now. listeners should know that I am the parent of a, a three-year-old. He is a user of Lego products. He's also at a stage in his life where building things with stuff like Legos is built into us. It's built into how we operate. Can you talk a little bit about how Lego interacts with folks over the course of their lives and like how kids begin with the product and then how it starts to get built into the, the educational programs that, that you're involved with? Absolutely. And I think what you're seeing is that natural love of play and how play leads to learning so well with your own child. And I know with my daughter, I see the same thing. It's just amazing as they grow, how that play turns into various types of learning. So with Lego Education, we actually were founded in 1980. So we've been around for over 40 years thinking about learning as part of the Lego group, thinking about how we transform the bricks and, and the playful nature of them into true learning. And so we talk mm -hmm. about being very purposeful to play. And what we mean by that is we think really deeply into that developmental area for students, whether it's preschool, whether it's elementary, whether it's middle, as we go up and we really think about what that learning can look like. Mm -hmm. We recently launched our Lego learning system. It's intuitive, it's inclusive, it's very adaptable, which means we really can meet students where they are in their journey. Mm -hmm. So 
really think about that student in elementary and science and how they're starting on their inquiry-based journey and what does inquiry-based look like in problem-based learning and project-based learning. It all just is a different way to approach playful learning where we let students have that ability to try things out. I mean, you're seeing it right now with your three-year-old, trying those things out, failing sometimes, not being successful, trying something new, that iterative kind of joyful, meaningful learning that can happen when we just stop and let the learning happen naturally. Mm -hmm. It's what we want to capture at every grade level and think about what's appropriate. So fostering in then those skills, thinking about how we scaffold the knowledge and learning that goes with it through that approach. And we just see amazing things that the students are able to create because it makes STEAM learning easier to implement and it makes it really fun for students. Yeah. The students, but also the teachers. Mm -hmm. They're also getting to have fun in what they're teaching. We're supporting them through our professional development platform and our facilitated trainings. And we see that they then get really excited to bring this learning into their classrooms as well. So everyone's really benefiting from that ability to have playful learning happening. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I've been struck by it watching Matthew start to engage with this stuff, how in some ways our educational systems might lose sight of some of the open-endedness and the importance of play and, you know, the importance of social, emotional learning and getting along with your peers and also building things together with people. The idea that he can, he's already building things with his peers and feels like we're starting to build more of that back into K-12 and higher ed and enterprise learning. But in a lot of ways, I, I have been struck lately, and maybe I'm just biased because I have a three-year-old, but I am struck by how much we seem to get right early on with the experience of learning. It is fun. It's, you know, physical, it's social, it's, you know, student-led in a lot of ways. But then over time, we seem to lose sight of that. Any reflections on that? I, I imagine part of the strategy there is to to be a touch point really throughout someone's life. Can you talk about the way it changes from the early earliest stages, like on into maybe young adulthood? Absolutely. And I think I'll reference our Lego Foundation study into playful learning is a great resource to think about that connection between what what I was just saying, between how children play and their ability to cope with their environment, learn new skills, gain knowledge, and really then thinking about how that grows with them. It's really about allowing, as you said, for that open-ended creativity to happen. And that can take different, it can look different across the different ages. It might be more inquiry-based in science classrooms as we think about our middle school students. It's still allowing them to ask those questions and dig into them, maybe with a little bit more structure. Again, we're very purposeful about the way we approach it, but it still allows them to have that kind of meaningful, joyful, socially interactive. And what I'm naming are kind of those characteristics of play that the Lego Foundation has brought to us and defined for us. Mm. And the fact that there's a lot of different types of learning that look this way. It's just about opening up those possibilities so that students can fail. And we talk about meaningful failure a lot. Really, failure is an opportunity to learn. And I think we realize that as, as we get older, but we want students to have that opportunity to learn how to do that, how to learn from their failures and use it. And we have all these opportunities as they grow to help them understand how feedback can help them and drive them further, for example. But it's all then about putting it in that school environment 
and wrapping it around what are the knowledge, what are the skills, how do we scaffold that? What about a learner that comes in with no experience versus a learner that has experience, those various backgrounds? And so with our Lego learning system, we really truly have thought through how do we ensure everyone can enter and find success? And how do we loop that learning and how do we scaffold it year after year? So we're thoughtful about the fact that students revisit concepts and they come back and show their mastery and then take it a step further. And it really truly then is about giving those opportunities to continue to build on what they've learned before. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, it was interesting when you were talking about learning through failure, a lot of those lessons are social emotional ones. How do I regulate myself when I fail? How do I stay motivated? How do I continue to lean into the engagement and then also learn how to work with others? It all makes me think about the future of work, which is another area that I want to get into ties to the NASA program and the way in which you, you built that out. But before we get to that, the other thing I wanted to discuss with you, because you're a, a bit of an expert in this space, is understanding the difference between STEM and STEAM and how when we add the A to STEAM, which is something I have talked about before, science, technology, engineering, and math is STEM. I love, I love acronyms, by the way. And then science, technology, the arts, and math is STEAM. We also play Wordle like crazy these days. So STEAM is a Wordle clue and STEM is not. So aside from being better in that respect, it is something that I know Lego is thinking a lot about. And it reminds me of conversations. I, I frequently reference Steve Jobs, who was famous for talking about that intersection between the, the artist and the engineer. Can you catch us up a little bit on your thinking and, and how Lego's thinking about STEAM and STEM? Take that wherever you'd like it to go. Yeah, I think it's a really great question. And, and I'll start with this idea of authenticity and learning, maybe. When we think about STEM learning, when we think about STEAM learning, it really truly is about how do we give those students experiences and, and this kind of authentic approach to learning, which doesn't segment those pieces that you just indicated. It really thinks about how to bring them together. Mm. And it's kind of true interdisciplinary approach where we can integrate math and science, where we can integrate arts and science. And that just gives that really authentic learning opportunity for students. And I mentioned before about pulling in knowledge and skills. Again, you can't separate those two. It's not just about certain science knowledge you might gain. It's about the skills that you use and seeing how those skills overlap into other areas. I just think about engineering habits of mind and how that spreads across all areas so well. Mm. With that, then it's leaning into the learning and the thinking. And again, by approaching it through that STEAM lens, we give that opportunity for students to really express their thinking. How do they explain how they got to a final solution answer if we give them a problem to solve? Mm. And that's one of the most important parts of learning. It's not just that you did it. You know, go back to my days as a science teacher doing a, a lab with students. It's not just that they did it. I want them to be able to explain and talk about what they did. Mm. And so we really try to approach learning in that way. With our Lego Education Spike Essential, for example, Students are going on a journey with many figure characters. So it's, it's really fun and engaging, but very purposeful in the fact that they're going on this journey and it's a narrative-based problem where they're working with those characters through a story, finding the solution to that problem or an idea that might help those many figure characters. And students then take it into their own ideas and solution. That takes them into creating their own stories. That takes them into talking and explaining and their thinking becomes visible, which is always incredible to happen. 
And if we hadn't approached it through that lens, they would have lost that opportunity to take learning to the next level, if you will, because it's becoming even more authentic to them. They're really engaged in what's happening, not just because of the, the physical, tangible nature of it, but because they're immersed in the story with those minifigures and bringing that story to life. And again, we would lose that if we didn't make sure those parts and pieces of STEM were really well integrated together. So that's just a taste of the conversation that I had with Jenny. We'll include links to that episode on the show page. I am exploring some ideas around starting a podcast about raising a young son and thinking about education and trends in early childhood ed, something we've talked about a bunch on the show. Be on the lookout for that. Also, remember, take a look at our Trending in Ed, the Future of Work series, which is launching this week. It should be available anywhere you find your podcasts. We'll also be sharing more information at Trending in Ed on Twitter and also at our website, trendinginteducation.com. You can also find us at trendinginedcom With that, I'm going to pick up with one more piece from our sister program, Running It Back, where Tarlin Ray and I meet regularly to discuss what's happening in the world of sports and what lessons can be learned from sports. I have found it to be a really great outlet to tackle some of the trickier issues to address head on. Sports frequently reflects what's going on in society. And that's very much the case when it comes to gender equality and issues around Title IX and also issues related to the Supreme Court decision recently to overturn Roe v. Wade. Tarlin and I met to record this episode on Saturday, the day after Roe v. Wade was overturned. We had already planned to record an episode about Title IX, which we did. It just wound up being very much informed by the Supreme Court ruling and some of the concerns that we both share around women's rights, women's reproductive rights. Tarlin is the father of two girls and is someone who has throughout running it back, talked a lot about the importance of thinking about equity as it relates to sports. That was really the thrust of the conversation. But since we all live in these challenging times, we wound up also addressing some of our initial raw and a little bit shook reaction to the Supreme Court ruling. Check out Running It Back if you like what you hear from Trending It Ed. It's a slightly different flavor of conversation, but it's coming from the same folks here at Palmer Media. Hopefully you enjoyed this clip. We'll pick up with it right after this. Thank you for flying Running It Back. Thank you for our listeners for flying the friendly skies. It's challenging times, Tarlin. Roe v. Wade was overturned yesterday by the Supreme Court. We're feeling very much for the women in our lives. It's a challenging time for them, trying to empathize, trying to understand what's going on. In many ways, this brings me back to Title IX as much as the NBA draft was bringing me back there as well during the NBA draft. Several of the players were children of women who had played in the NCAA or had coached in the NCAA, had gone on to the WNBA. There is an increasing awareness among some of us. It does feel like we are living in two different countries now, but there is an increasing awareness among some of us 
at how profound the impact of Title IX has been on women's sports, women's athletics, and really more the true promise of college athletics, which frequently isn't delivered through the sports feeder program that college sports frequently becomes. Let's take a moment to talk briefly about Title IX. I'll read the 37 words and then get your reaction. Title IX states, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance on the basis of sex. I added that again for emphasis. Your thoughts on Title IX, where do you want to start? I mean, it's continued evolution of the Civil Rights Act. We need to call out Patty Mink, Democrat out of Hawaii, who was the first woman of color and Asian elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. She was the lead author for that title. Most people don't know it was really focused around education at the time. 42% of participants that are people in college were women, but most people think of it as being focused around sports. It's fascinating to think just back to my father who played in a small college in Ohio where he could only go to certain schools because there's only a certain number of black players allowed on teams. So seeing this and reading those words and spending time thinking about the first woman to get a scholarship, athletic scholarship, uh, the college was Ann Myers in 1976 mm -hmm. um, when she went to UCLA. She also was the first woman to play on a national team in high school and the first to sign an NBA contract. Now, she wasn't the first to get drafted. We know that Lucia Harris, who we love, anyone who has watched the Queen of Basketball documentary on Apple Plus, you must watch it. She was a baller. She was the first woman drafted, but this is the first woman to get a contract. None of this happens without Title IX and those 37 words. And that's why I link it to my father. I empathize with the female athlete in the same way I think my dad could have gone somewhere else if not for the limitations and the lack of access. Mm -hmm. So really the 50 year mark of Title IX, we're not only running it back to the 37 words, but it gives us an opportunity to run back and say, what, the, what ifs? Like we wouldn't have the Serena's, the Annika's, the Steffi, the Candace Parker's, the Sue Bird's, the Fierce Five, Venus's, Lisa Leslie's, Mia Hamm's, Jenny Finch's across the board in all sports without those 37 words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention, although she wasn't directly impacted by Title IX, but Billie Jean King was prevalent in the same time period. The 1970s is also when the Equal Rights Amendment was on the verge of being passed. It does make me think now about amendments when you are understanding the level to which the Constitution is coming into play these days and what actually are enshrined rights that are protected versus those that can be revoked like what we've seen yesterday with Roe v. Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court. It does make me think about this day and age. Brittany Griner, who is still in jail in Russia, she has been a proponent of transgender rights. It is a place where Title IX is on the 
basis of sex, that does open up legal interpretation as far as what do you mean by sex? And that is another challenge that we're facing in the world of sports. You know, we look to sports to find lessons learned, but the other thing I think we've noticed a lot of late is that sports in many ways is a reflection of society. It's a microcosm of society and what happens in sports frequently trickles out into the rest of our lives. You just went through a nice list of female athletes who have made tremendous impacts. Are there any particular stories today that are easy to trace back to their roots in Title IX or their roots in the movements of the early 70s? A couple of things. One, Title IX, similar to the um, decision yesterday, this doesn't come without controversy because if there's a benefit for females, most will see it as taking away from male athletes. Male athletes you've seen in the last, at least the first 33 years post Title IX, 400 men's teams cut. And mainly around wrestling, swimming, track, golf, rowing, and cross country. Some of that can point to the three-prong test tied to Title IX from the Office of Civil Rights, focused on how you create the balance and equity between men's and women's sports. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it focuses on the number of male and female athletes has to be substantially proportionate to the respective enrollment. There are two more prongs, but that one in particular, if you look at enrollment in college, Mm -hmm. in 1972, as we said, female enrollment in college was 42%. 1980, 50-50, male, female. 1990, 91, 46% men, 54% women. 2000, 47 2018, 19, 43, 57, and then post-COVID, 60% female wow. on college campuses. Mm-hmm. So Title IX, we're such in the early days. If you think about it, 1991 was the first time females competed in the World Cup. So we're not that far. It's not like we're 100 years beyond the statute and, and the impact and the ripple effect it will have for a female athlete. But what a lot of conversations are about the loss for men and the loss for them to have an ability to compete and show their talents in college. Mm -hmm. Uh, You ask what the impact, nothing happens without a continued fight. Nothing continues without, you know, Title IX also deals with sexual harassment, sexual discrimination. It's tied to that. There are multiple layers. You mentioned transgender sports that are tied to this one act, these 37 words. But what we're going to continue to see is, I think, an expansion, you know, WMA did its 25-year women's soccer is continuing to see expansion, continue expansion and an acceptance. I use that acceptance of women's sports in prime time. Right. You still can't find or discover women's sports easily. My daughter is a volleyball player, so she set her on her team. I challenge you to easily find the women's college volleyball tournament. And I mentioned that specifically because women's college volleyball players have the second most NIL dollars, name, image, and likeness. So it's obviously a sport that from an advertiser and a promotion perspective, there's value there, yet 
it's not easy and women's sports still aren't in the mainstream. So mm -hmm. I mentioned that because there's still a long way to go. There's more teams in various campuses. If there are going to be cuts that are made and we saw a lot of cuts from COVID, men's sports are taking the ax sometimes ahead of women's sports, but we still see from a if participation perspective, it's higher, but let's say coaches, 58% of the teams are coached by men. So men are coaching women's sports while only 8% of women are, are the coaches for men's sports. So there's still a long way to go. And I'm not ever looking for the balance of 50, 50, it's just opportunity. Mm -hmm. That's why I drew a line to my father who was playing for a small school in Ohio. It's just the opportunity, mm -hmm. it's not an expectation that they get a, a role or the job, but just creating more opportunities. And that to me is what title IX is about. And we're only in the, for me, the early days of continue to open up that opportunity set for women. Yeah. And it is a reminder recent days that to your point, the fight doesn't end and understanding the longer term impact, something that began in 1972 is now still bearing fruit. The example from the draft that I was looking at was Jaden Ivey, who was drafted fifth overall Thursday night's NBA draft by the Pistons. Jaden's mother, Neil, is a former WNBA player herself who had stints with the Indiana Fever, Phoenix Mercury, and the Detroit Shock. The impact is borne out in real examples, real lives, just like your example. Not just women are impacted positively by Title IX and by the expansion of access. And then your point about college and higher ed enrollments for men versus women are really at an all-time shift towards women enrolling. There's actually a bit more of a crisis now around why aren't more young men going to college? What are they doing? What is the impact of the pandemic? And what can we do to help there? It is interesting to see how some of these tides have turned to the point that now maybe there's a problem with men and their perception of higher education, you know, young boys coming through high school, questioning whether college makes sense for them. You know, we don't want to talk too much about men on a Title IX episode, but we both are of that persuasion. What are your thoughts on the impact of things like Title IX for men? And do we have a crisis right now around the way men are choosing not to go to college? So Title IX, that's what I'm saying. The early narrative was that it, it is because it's giving opportunities to women, it's taken away from it. And so between 2002 and 2020, there've been 73,000 new participation opportunities for men in sports and college versus 67,000 new participation opportunities for women. So across all sports, opening up more access. So there isn't a ledger where, yes, there may be sports that you can call, unfortunately, more fringe sports because they do not, are not high revenue drivers, even though there's interest in them. That may hit the headlines because those sports are going away for men, but it's not like writ large, men are losing opportunities to play. I do know some friends who are coaches in sports and college may have a different narrative. At least that's the way some of the stats are bearing out. It's a more complicated question when you're asking about why the participation rate flipped 
which used to be 5842 in 1972, men to women, now it's 6040. There are other macro issues that are causing the larger population of males to believe that college is not a path for opportunity. College is not a path for success. And that is something that we have to be tackling in the education system and the opportunities that we create for students. So some believe that the only path to winning is to go to a four-year, but we have to open up the opportunity set to say, there are other ways for you to take your first productive step post high school and, and win. So when you tie everything, you could tie the title nine and the gains for women and then point to the reduction in enrollment in college for men and say, that's the cause. And that's the mistake. Mm -hmm. That is a clickbait moment. That is having a conversation that lacks texture when there's so many other complicating factors that, that have contributed to a 20 year to 25 year decline in men going to college. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about Jane Ivey, it's so funny you have, and I'll talk about my Lakers for a minute, but Scotty Pippen's son. He went undrafted, but we picked him up on the Lakers. And you always like to say, if you're the son of an athlete, O'Neal, Sharif O'Neal is looking to get into the NBA, you have a higher likelihood to be able to play big time ball mm -hmm. when you grow up. Yeah. Funny story. I heard a story about the Matthews family. One of the longtime either linebackers or linemen in the pros, and one of them was coaching a youth league and got the parents together early and said, how many of you played high school sports? And some hands raised all proud. And how many of you played college? And maybe there was one. And how many of you played professional? Zero. So that's great. The likelihood of any of your sons playing in college is near zero. So let's just have some fun this year. Yeah. So seeing normally you point to the dads as having impact and you can trace the lineage to players who then go into the NBA and NFL. So it's awesome to see sons of dominant moms who were ballers in their time and got either the love of the game or their skills from their mom. Yeah. Hashtag boy moms. I know you're a hashtag girl dad, but I was impressed, you know, even outside of those whose moms and dads may have played in the NBA, you know, you look at the relationship that Kevin Durant has with his mom or LeBron James has with his mom. That is a way, I think, to connect this back to the male side of the sports world. Beyond that, I was looking at some of the response. You know, we're recording this on Saturday. The Supreme Court decision about Roe v. Wade just came in yesterday. Already, we are seeing articles out there where folks like Megan Rapinoe, Billie Jean King, there's a joint statement between Adam Silver and the WNBA commissioner, Kathy Engelbert, that states that Leagues believe that women should be able to make their own decisions concerning their health and future. And we believe that freedom should be protected. They go on to say that they advocate for gender health and equity. It's going to be a new conversation now about women athletes, even the, the college that they choose to attend. If they're fortunate enough to play as professionals, what state will they be? playing in and what are the policies around reproductive rights in those states. It is a challenging time. It's a time where you've talked extensively on this show about the leadership role that women athletes and women's sports have played 
as activists. You know, I like to quote Ethel Merman. It's better to sing one song too few than one song too many. We're going to wrap up the conversation from Running It Back right there. If you like what you're hearing, check us out, Running It Back, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at runningitback.fm. We're coming up on our 50th episode of Running It Back. We're also coming up on our 500th episode of Trending in Ed. We're launching some new feeds this summer. It's an exciting time. It's a challenging and confusing time. Hopefully this is helping us get our bearings. Let us know what you think. You can reach us at Trending in Ed on Twitter. You can also reach me, Michael Palmer, on LinkedIn. I'm also Mike at Palmer Media if you want to reach out. I'm always excited to get feedback and perspective from our listeners. Would love to get more listeners' voices heard on the show. And with that, we'll wrap up this eclectic episode where we ranged from playful learning to Title IX and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It's a time where we got to play with our heads up, look across the wide world around us and try to understand what's going on so that we can lean into the next chapter, hopefully help write it where we can. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to Trending in Ed. Let your friends know. Write us a review. Do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. Thanks as always for listening. This is Trending in Education.